Uh, we're, we are beginning a new direction in our fellowship. Um, in Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20, Jesus gave us the command, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That's what he commanded us. And, and as I shared last Sunday, um, I recommend you go listen to that message, as Erica mentioned. When we finished our time, our year and a half, year plus, uh, almost two years, okay, uh, through the book of Matthew, those final verses, that crescendo of Jesus's teaching really struck home with me as he said, this is what I want you to be about. What I was doing, now you go do. That's, that's it. Go and make disciples of all nations. And I was convicted because um, it was evident that our fellowship is not fulfilling that, that mission. And I did that by saying, raise your hand if basically I went from six months up. But in the last five years, I'll do it again this morning, if you have come to the Lord in the last five years, raise your hand. Oh, yeah, it has been a while. So, Clayton, woo! Called you out on the internet web. And that's the point. Jesus said, go and make disciples. Now, I think we're a well-taught church. I think a lot of things are going well. And that was the point. But, I, but are we making disciples? And, and I said, first of all, that's my fault. That's, that's a reflection on my leadership, number one. Um, and I asked for your forgiveness. I asked for your forgiveness. And I also asked for you to pray for me as I seek, and the elders, as we seek to right this ship and now obey the Lord in this area to go make disciples. And... As I said last week, um, this is the direction we're headed. This is, this is the, the way we're going. And so it's going to be very uncomfortable for you if you are like, no, I'd rather not. Because this is what Christians do. We obey Jesus Christ. And so it's uncomfortable for me as well because now I need to make some changes. We all need to make some changes. I don't even know exactly what that looks like, but we're going to head in that direction and figure it out together, which I'm excited about. And so that's the direction we're headed. We're going to about face as a church and just obey Jesus in this area to go and make disciples of all nations. And so in the first few weeks, I want to share some, I've wanted to share some big picture items that will help us get, get off to the right start. And so if you're used to a verse-by-verse -verse study, we'll come back to one of those a little bit later in, later, just going to say later. You know how I get when I say, we're going to do this, and then it takes a while. But I want to I share some big picture items that are going to help us. And so last Sunday, I spoke about the heart of the matter for me, and I think for us, that although there are many God-glorifying things that are going on in this fellowship, and I cannot emphasize that enough, there are so many good things that God is doing in and through you. I mean, we talk, we talk about it all the time. There's just so many good things. I cannot say that enough. God is doing great things in and through you. You know, but it's often quite times when everybody's cheering, you just hear this one, boo. You're like, what's up with that? You know? And so I think there's a lot of like, yay. But there's like one, hey, there's, a, there's an issue here. And so Last week, I believe the word of the Lord for us as we started off on this new adventure is in both an encouragement and, and a rebuke. You know, that's how the Lord works. He encourages, but he also corrects. 
in Revelation 2, 1 through 7. And in that passage, a letter written from the Lord to the church of Ephesus. Remember, Ephesus was pastored by John the Apostle, uh, by Paul, by a lot of, you know, pretty good pastors, I would say. But time had gone on, and the Lord commended them for all that was going on. He's saying, hey, there's, you got all these things that are going on that are great in your fellowship. Keep doing them. They're awesome. Because I have this one thing against you. In verse 4 of Revelation 2, he says, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. You've abandoned the love you had at first. And I think this is key for us that we can be doing a lot of right actions, right motions, right things, but have lost the heart for Jesus in the midst of it. How many of you feel religious at times and kind of just working it through and doing what's right, even though your heart's far from it? Well, that's not what the Lord would have. And he says that's unsustainable. Actually, if you don't correct that, I'm going to come take my lamp from you guys. I'm going to remove my... I'm just going to discipline the church. I'm going to disband you. That's not meaning you all lose your salvation. It just means it's over. And that's not what's going to happen here. And so when our love grows cold, our witness grows cold. That's what was going on. Our witness grows cold. When you love someone or something, you talk about it and you share it with others. Is that not true? Anybody? Like, just a key to knowing people is just ask them questions for the first five minutes. I learned this from others, not myself. But you just ask them questions about themselves, and pretty soon you find out what they love and what they like and what's in their heart and what their priorities are and all that kind of stuff. And it's neat to know people that way. You get to know them. And you find things in common. And so is Jesus on our hearts? Is He on our mind? Is He on our lips? Is He in our actions? Is He prioritize? Is our, our time, talent, treasure, toil, is it all prioritized around him? Or is there some other love got in there? And so I thought that was one very important thing to start us off on, is that we can say, okay, now I'm going to go do this, because Jesus said it, let's go do it. <laughs> Checkbox, I'm a Christian. Or, is, or are we going to respond to what Jesus says and says, listen, here's what I want you to do. I want you to remember from where you've fallen. I want you to repent, and I want you to redo the first things. Remember the three R's from last week, and I'd encourage you to go listen to that. So how did it go for you this week on making Jesus your first love again? Anyone struggle or just totally walked out of here and forgot what we talked about? Raise your hand if you like. Later, I forgot. Raise your hand. Admission of guilt. Raise your hand high. Do it. Come on, raise it. It's okay. We want to fail together in this, right? <laughs> yeah. I struggled this week. I'm like, okay, this is what I got to be doing, but then I went back to default, default, default. Things to do, places to go, ministry popping up. Anybody else? Yeah. And so... Hey, guess what? What's so cool is we have another week to go ahead and remember from where we've fallen, to repent, and to redo the first things. Amen? So let's do that. Let's encourage one another in our daily lives. Because if, if our heart, if our zeal for the Lord, our love for Him is not rekindled, revived, 
then this is ridiculous. That's what he wants, and he demands of his church. He wants to have a love relationship with us. Amen? It's not that he doesn't love us. It's that he wants to have fellowship, that koinonia, that fire, that first love with him. Amen? And when we love Jesus, guess what's going to happen with our mouth? I'm going to share Jesus with people. And so I was sharing with some of you last week my personal experience of, by the way, I did come to the Lord when I was four. And the, the stuff I was sharing with you didn't happen to me until I was 19, 20. So I spent some rough years in the world, even though I knew the Lord. So I'm, I'm saying there's a spectrum there, but there is a first love that we have when the Lord gets a hold of our hearts and there's a fire there and we begin to go, you're number one and all these other things don't fit. He changes us from the inside out and he's just saying, this is where I want you to stay. I want me to be number one always. We go, I can't manufacture that. It's like, no, I, let me do it in you. Come to me, make me number one. And so he gives us these three R's to follow. So let's do that. If not, Jesus says, I'll come and remove your lampstand from its place. That's not an option with us, amen? So we're gonna respond to the Lord's encouragement and his correction and that's the direction we're going to go. So as we repent, part of repentance is redoing the first things, right? And when we first knew him, we told people about Jesus. And so church, let's tell people about Jesus. And this is going to bring up a bunch of things. I'm scared to, I don't know what to say, all that stuff. Regardless, are you committed <laughs> in your heart are you devoted to telling people about Jesus? Are you, are you a disciple of Jesus yourself and saying, yes, I will do this? Yes, Lord, I have no idea what I'm doing, but let's go. Is that a yes or a no? If it's a no, you got to repent. <laughs> Remember, repent, redo, right? <laughs> I don't want to kick you out of the room, but I'm just saying that's what, that's, that's what the church does. That's what we are. Amen? And, and don't say, Matt, that's your job. Don't, Matt, that's your job. You are the one who does that. I'm the one who sits and listens to you. It's not the way the Lord organized it. Although I have, a, I have a part to play, right? My job is to equip you for the work of the ministry. So that's a, a big thing, responding to the Lord's command to go and make disciples by having that heart. For the Lord Jesus, because guess what his heart for is? His heart is to honor his Father, and the Father's heart is for God so loved the world that he gave his Son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. He goes after the sinner to draw him to himself. That's his heart, and if that's not our heart, then we've got heart failure, right? Another huge picture I want, us, I want us to kind of look at as we're kind of going topically on stuff, and these are just things that, I, that are on my heart. There could be a better order of this. He's called us to this great commission. And as we respond to the Lord's command to go and make disciples, as you say, yes, Lord, I'm committed. I'm scared to death. I have no idea what, what we're going to do. We've got to change the way we're doing things, but I have no idea how to do it. All that, 
As we go and make disciples, by the way, a disciple being someone who believes in Jesus and obeys Jesus. That's the simple definition, believing and obeying. That's what a disciple is. You're Christ-like. So I think it's important that to understand that this is a venture of faith and it requires us to trust in God. So much of what we try to do, we try to do in our own strength. As a church, in other areas. And when we try to do it in our own strength, we just equate out the power of God. We don't allow God to just shine and be strong and be big. We try to manufacture the power of God, or we try to manipulate the power of God, or we try to do whatever it is. How many of you have kind of like tried to will it or whatever it is? There's just a powerlessness in our lives. Listen, anything God is going to do, it requires us to trust him. That's where he works. He works in the realm of faith. And he always puts a big old gap between what he's calling us to do and that end result where we have to trust him. And the question is, when he says, go and make disciples, there's a whole bunch of reasons why I'm not going to go do that. But do I trust him? You can trust in God. And the reason you can trust in God in your obedience and your venture is because he's the one doing all the heavy lifting. It seems like we are, but that's not the case. And I wanted to kind of paint that picture as we go out, because if we are going out in this going, we're looking inward at our abilities, and I'm looking at you going, gosh, you know, why haven't I taught you better? And you're looking at me going, he's leading us off a cliff, and we're just like, you know, (laughs) sheep just... If we keep doing that, the focus is inward. But if we look to God and we look to who he is and his mighty power and what he does, man, that just breeds faith within us. And and it's not us who's doing the work so much as it is him and him in us and through us. So we want to put our eyes on God. We want to trust in God that as we go out and make disciples that he is at work. And I want to paint the picture of that God is actually at work. He is the one who initiates. Do you know that? That God is the one who goes before us. That God is the one who initiates. That God is the one who calls sinners to himself. That God is the one who saves. That God is the one who sanctifies. He's the one who cleans us up. He's the one who teaches us by his spirit. He's the one who reveals his plan and his will to us that we cannot know apart from a spiritual connection happening, the Father revealing his will to our spirits and connecting it. He's the one who reveals it. And he's also the one who sends us out and makes us have the ability to have faith to go where we'd never go. He's he's the one who does it all. And if we understand that, if we see the pattern of this in Scripture, if we believe that, our eyes are not going to be on ourselves. They're going to be on Him. And I think our eyes are on ourselves. 
so often. Anyone else struggle with this? Okay, time to raise your hand. What keeps us from witnessing to someone? Just saying. I would say all these things are us-centered things. But what if God was at work? What if he decided to use little old you with all your issues and problems and inabilities and poor communication skills? And what if he decided to display his mighty power through you. Doesn't that sound like something God would do? Because if I've got it all together, the attention goes to me. And that's not the plan. The plan is that we do our works in such a way that people see our works and they glorify our Father in heaven. Go, wow, God's at work because I know it's not you, but he's somehow using you. What is that? And we go, well, it's because I took this class. It's because he's awesome. And he's alive, and they see it, and they know it because it's him. That's what we want, is God to be at work. And so we need to trust in God. Just look at some examples of how God works when he initiates. He initiates. We can trust in him. Think of Noah. In Genesis, open to Genesis chapter 6, verses 11 through 12. I know this is weird. It's the Old Testament. It's the first book in the Bible. We haven't been there before. No, I'm just kidding. It's been a couple years. Genesis chapter 6, verses 11 through 22. And you can write these down, and, and there's so many more. You just go through all the patriarchs, and this is how he works. But I'm just going to lay out four or five different examples. Noah, I'm just going to read this. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, verse 11, 611. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. You've got an earth that's corrupt and filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their ways on the earth. You have a corrupt earth, and God sees it. And God said to Noah, and so God begins to speak to Noah, now, really quickly, did Noah come to God or did God come to Noah? Okay, God comes to Noah. Great, write that down. God initiated. I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them uh, with the earth, and, make, and he tells them, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. What does God do there? This is how I see things. This is my plan. There's judgment coming but guess what? Noah, I'm letting you in on my plan. I'm coming to you. I'm letting you in on my plan. I'm letting you know what's happening. And here's what I want you to do is I want you to prepare an ark. In other words, God is going to save some. God's going to save some. And he has a plan for saving some. And God came to Noah and told him to build an ark. And the rest of the chapter describes the dimensions of the ark. He has an exact plan on how to save some and animals, and all this type of stuff. And so there's a description there in the rest of the chapter. And, and there, along with the animals in his family, in verse 22, uh, it says, Noah did this, and he did all that God commanded him. 
pretty interesting. God called Noah. Yep. God saved Noah. Noah believed and he obeyed and he was saved. I know that's kind of weird, but that's kind of how it works with us. God comes to us. He calls us. We believe. We obey. And we're saved. Like we are saved and we're being saved and we will be saved. It's an amazing thing. And he lets Noah in on his plan. And Peter, in 2 Peter 2.5, he calls Noah a preacher of righteousness. Wait, I thought he was like the crazy boat builder. Oh, wait, from God's perspective, Noah was a preacher of righteousness. That sounds like a dumb thing to do, to build a boat when there's none of that stuff going on, right? The world's going to look at that and go, that is silly. But what does Noah do? He did all that God commanded. He obeyed. And in his obedience, in what he was doing, building the ark, proclaiming the only way of salvation to people, he was saying to them, there's judgment coming and God is righteous and this is the way. And the ark is a picture of the cross. It's a picture of Christ, all these types of things. And in Christ, you are saved. Apart from that, you're not. All that kind of stuff. You can go into that. But notice it was God who called Noah. It was God who called Noah. Very interesting. Moses, another picture. In Exodus chapter 2 and 3, we're introduced to Moses. Many of you know, flip over to Exodus. It's the next book of the Bible there. Many of you know the story of the Hebrews, how they were enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, being a slave in Egypt for 400 years or around 400 years. And at the end of that time, God raised up to deliver, to deliver the Hebrews out of Egypt. That was Moses. When he was a baby, the edict went out to kill all the male children, but the Hebrew women didn't, wouldn't do that. His mom and his sister put him in, in a little, you know, whatever it is, floaty thing, sent him down the river. And what happened? Pharaoh's daughter saw Moses, took him, raised him at his own in the house of Egypt. When Moses was 40 years old, he saw the brutality of the Egyptians towards his people. He knew where he came from. Apart from Charlton Heston's story, it seemed like he knew all along who he was. And he saw the Egyptians, they were killing his people, and something within him said, this is not right, and I need to be a part of stopping this. But the way he went about it was by murdering an Egyptian. And he buried him in the sand, but some other Hebrews were watching, and so he fled to Midian for another 40 years. He was out in the desert, the Sinai Desert in Saudi Arabia, 40 years. So he's 80 years old out there. And what happens at 80 years old? Are you listening, older people? God comes to him and says, I've got a plan for you. I've got a plan that, that's me, but you're involved. At 80, how many of you are like, oh, I'm done? No. You're not. And so he was there for another 40 years, and according to Acts 7.30, he was 80, and God revealed himself to him. You can read about that in Acts 7 as Stephen's recounting what happens. But let me read for you Exodus 3, verses 2 through 10. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him, Moses, in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. This is how God revealed himself to him. And it says, when the Lord saw 
that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the burning bush. And so you have the angel of the Lord, you have the Lord, you have God. Yes. God spoke to Moses. And he called to him out of the burning bush and said to him what? Moses, Moses. There's something that God attracted Moses to him and he called out to him. God is the initiator. God is at work. He said, and what did Moses say? He said, here I am. And he said, don't come near. Okay, take your sandals off your feet for this place which you are standing is holy ground. And he said to him, I am the Lord. I am the God of your father is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he is afraid to look at God. When he encountered God, God revealed himself to Moses, and Moses' reaction, when he understood who God was, was a fear because God was holy and Moses was not. And that's what happens when people run into God. They realize that they are unholy and he is holy. That is the natural interaction that God brings us to. You have to know that. And that's why I'm asking that first love has to happen when we see him, when there's a conviction over sin and a cleansing over sin and a change within our life that puts us going in a different direction. You can look at that in the story of Enoch and other places as well. Moses hid his face, and so God calls Moses. And he calls him to fulfill his plan. This is interesting. Verse 7, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and broad land, a land flowing of milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and all the sites. Right? God says, Moses, I'm going to download my plan to you. Here it is. I've come to save these people. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to deliver them out of there and I'm going to send them to there. That's my plan. Notice, God came to Moses. God showed him his plan. And then, listen, Moses, my plan is to deliver my people, verse 9. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression which has come from the Egyptians, uh, uh, oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children, out of Egypt. This is my plan, and this is your part in my plan. I'm sending you. That's quite a turnaround from herding sheep and seeing a burning bush to I'm sending you to the place where you just fled, and I'm going to send you to the power structure there, and you're going to speak to them and deliver my people. That's quite a shock. But do you see it? God calls. Sends Moses to fulfill his plan, to save his people. How does Moses respond to all that? It's kind of how we respond, isn't it? The Lord says to him over and over, and you can read it, I am with you. I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you. But Lord, I'm not a really great speaker. I'm not eloquent. God goes, I'll teach. Didn't I make your mouth? I made your mouth. And I will 
help your mouth and I will teach you what you should say. I've got it covered. Trust me. How many of you go, Lord, I see the call. I know what you're calling me to do, but I am not eloquent. Raise your hand. You know where this is going. I'm trapping you. And to that, what would the Lord say to you? I'm with you. I made your mouth and I will teach you what to say. I'll teach you. All that requires what? Faith. You got to trust God. If you, and, and Moses kept going down the line, and I, and I don't have it in front of me right now, but you can see all the things. And finally, Moses goes, send someone else. How many of you, that's your morning prayer? Oh, Lord, you're so awesome. Thank you for taking care of me. My neighbor across the street, they need you. They're just, man, they're lost. Send someone over there, someone, someone else over there, else other than me. You know I'm on the prayer end of this deal. That's my ministry is prayer, not actually communicating anything about you to them. Anyone? Send someone else. So Lord, even in that, what does he do? Okay, I'll give you Aaron. And we all know who that worked out. Golden calf man, all that kind of stuff. His kids get burned alive. It's not good. It's horrible. So, God initiates. God calls. God will empower you. He's with us. He'll do it. Think about Isaiah. Move to another one. Isaiah the prophet. This is a beautiful one. Isaiah 6, 1 through 8. And I'm only just skipping around here. This is all through Scripture. All through Scripture. Over and over and over. This is your God. Isaiah 6, 1 through 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, this is Isaiah speaking, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So he's got this vision of heaven. God's allowed him to have this vision of heaven. Above him stood the seraphim. These are the angels, right, that are around his throne. Each had six wings, two on, three he covered his face, and two he covered his feet, and two he flew. And one called to another, said, holy, holy, holy to the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory, and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And so this is just something else. This is the throne room of God. And there's these beings that would just cause us to die if we saw them. And they are crying out holy, and the whole place is shaking, and, and it's filled with smoke and the glory of God. And there's just physical descriptions of a spiritual reality can't really translate too well, but this is the best that Isaiah could do, and it's as accurate as accurate can be. And so God reveals his holiness and his presence to Isaiah in a vision. God revealed himself to Isaiah and revealed his holiness and who he was to him. And here is Isaiah's response, verse 5. Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He ran into God. God revealed himself to him. And what happened in his heart when he found out he knew God? I'm undone. I need to be saved. I am unclean. We're all doomed. How would he know this unless God revealed himself to him? He would have no clue. But that was the reality of the situation. 
And so God, in his great love and his great mercy, he reveals himself to us in that first thing. He reveals his holiness, and there's a conviction of sin in light of who he is. And it's just a, it's a spiritual thing. It's indescribable. It's what he does to us. And we know we need to be saved. And what happens here? Verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hands a, a burning coal. And he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. What did God do with Isaiah's sin? He removed it. Salvation, so to speak. Picture of salvation, right? We know this is a picture of the cross. The sun, right? You see, God revealed himself to Isaiah. Isaiah instantly knew he needed to be saved. God cleansed Isaiah. But what happened? Verse 8, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, next, after this conversion, what does God do? He reveals his plan. When you come to the Lord, he starts to show you his plan. And he goes here, verse 8, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Let me ask you now, brothers and sisters of CCF, who's he going to send? Who's going to go for the Lord? Reverse engineer that. This is what Jesus is saying to the church in Ephesus. Remember that first love? Remember from whence you've fallen? Remember how I cleansed you? Remember that moment when I took it all away? Remember the, the cleansing there was and there was just was a heart that was just wherever, whenever, however, I'm yours. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, here I am, send me. Do you think Isaiah at that point is like, I'm so worthy? This is just a response to God's grace. It's a response to his grace. You can't lose sight of that. And that's what I was talking about last week. The Lord revealed himself to Isaiah. He saved Isaiah. Then he reveals his plan to Isaiah. And Isaiah responds to the call. And God sends him. And by the way, he sends him into a mess. Because no one listened. But Lord, that's not the plan I have. I want many, many people to listen. Sometimes he's just going to send you to people who will not listen. Nevertheless, it's his will that you go and speak. Because it's not about you about him. And you can keep reading about that. This is how God works over and over. He reveals himself. He initiates. He saves us. And he reveals his plan to us. And we, we go. He sends us to go save people where we were. It's amazing. Think about the Apostle Paul. Moving the New Testament. We could do all the New Testament characters, right? All the Old Testament characters, David, I could go through all that. But think about the Apostle Paul. That guy's got issues. Anybody you know has issues? 
Anybody you know, you know has religious issues? Oh, gosh, they are so steeped in that weird. They are so zealous for this or that. You know, we look at radical, like, Islam. Maybe that's the, the, the equivalent to that. We're just going, okay, no way. There's no way that these people are ever going to, and right now you're going, these people, what do you mean by these people? Those people, radicalized, willing to blow themselves up, do horrible things, all that kind of stuff, and I'm not doing moral equivalents. I'm just trying to paint the picture that Paul was so radical in his views that he went around from house to house and arrested Christians and killed them. That's what he was doing. He was the head guy seeking people out, doing that in the name of God. And he thought he was right in doing it. What about that guy, those people, that kind of thing going on? Acts 9, but Paul, still breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He was dedicated. Now, as he went on his way, verse 3 of Acts 9, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. A lot there. Who was Paul persecuting? Christians. Who was Paul persecuting? Jesus. One and the same. The body. And <laughs> what happens? Jesus says to him, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what to do. And the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. And so they let him, they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. That's Paul's like encounter with God. And by the way, other parts in Acts, Paul's re sharing his testimony to others before kings and things. And he's saying, listen, Jesus told me how much I would suffer for his namesake. He's telling me that where, where I would go and what I would do. So there was a lot more to this conversation that Paul later tells later in, in, in Acts. But now, as he goes into Damascus, now there was a disciple of Damascus named Ananias. No, Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. Good answer. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight and to the house of Judas and look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying and he has seen a vision, uh, a man named Ananias come and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, <laughs> send someone else. Is that what he said? Lord, I've heard 
much about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. How many of you have had discussions like this with the Lord? As he tells you to go witness to your boss, as he goes to tell you to witness in situations where you know there are ramifications. And as the Lord has put that on your heart, you dismiss it. But instead, I would encourage you, have this discussion with the Lord. Lord, you know this person and what these things are and all this is and, and what all these things. Just start sharing that with the Lord Jesus. Have a discussion in your heart. Verse 14, and here he has the authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, what? Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the, for the sake of my name. And so Ananias did what? Ananias did what? Departed and entered the house. He did. He obeyed. He went. I love that. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came and has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales from, fell from his eyes and he regained his sight and he rose and he was baptized and taking food. He was strengthened and for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying he is the son of God. What happened when he was changed? What did he do when he came to the Lord? He started telling people about Jesus because he was radically changed. You see what happens? And all who heard him were amazed and says, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem and those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for the purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength. It's not physical strength. It's strength in the Lord. He grew him as he went and obeyed. And confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Notice that Jesus came to Saul. Saul was changed. Jesus told Saul what to do. Saul did it. Saul proclaimed Jesus. Saul was persecuted and so forth, and he ended up dying. Saul was amazing. So I'm just laying out the examples over and over and over of God work, how God works. So it's God who calls. It's God who draws. It's God who teaches us, and it's God who sends us to do it. I think when we look at going and making disciples, we get so hung up on our inabilities. And we just need to get our eyes off ourselves and back onto God. He is at work. Trust in God. Devote yourself to what he calls you to do, even though there's a gap. There's always going to be a gap. There's always going to be something. The enemy wants to get you so focused on yourself and, and get you all fearful and all that instead of, instead of just looking at the Lord. And just from a doctrinal reminder, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, just for an encouragement. And you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now in the work of sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's the state of mankind. Ephesians 2. You're just dead and stuck. Verse 4. But God. 
What about God? Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Motivation. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. He resurrected us. By grace, you have been saved. Why were we made alive and why were we saved? It was because of his rich mercy and his great love and by his grace through Jesus. Verse 6, and he raised us up with him. That's resurrection. That's new life. And we're seated with him in heavenly places. We're now in Christ. We're in the ark. We're in him. So that in the coming ages... He might show immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Listen, God reveals himself and saves us and has raised us up in Christ Jesus for his own purposes and glory so that he can continually and forever show us his immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That's his plan. He lavished his grace upon you and saved you and did all those things. Why? So that... When you're dead and then you rise again, he can show you even more, the immeasurable riches of his grace. That's just his plan. That's who he is. That's what he does. He likes it. And he goes, I want you to go tell people that I want to go grab and bring into that through my son. This is God's heart. It's God's work. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's not your work. It's him. In verse 10, God has a plan for us. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, born again, made new in Christ Jesus. Why were you born again? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. You see, he made us, he created us as new creations in Christ Jesus to walk in his will, and he has prepared for each of us those good works that we should walk in his plan. So, closing here, when he calls us to go make disciples, be encouraged. He's already at work. He's already at work. He's already working in the hearts of people. He already knows what he wants to do, and he's calling you to step out in faith and join in him in the degree that which you respond in obedience, you get blessed. It's awesome. He's doing the heavy lifting. He's calling. He's saving them. He's making them disciples. Truly, he's, do, he's doing it all. And he desires to work through you to accomplish that. That's how he gets glorified. I want to work through the people that the angels marvel at going, how in the world can you work through these people? You would save those people and then use them as your messengers? Oh my gosh, Lord, you are amazing. You're amazing. That's why Paul says, I boast in my weakness. I don't boast in my strengths. I boast in my weakness. Oh, I'm so weak, but God is so strong. Look at him work. Watch him work. Let's go. I'm going to get pummeled. Yep, but God's going to be awesome. Let's go. So, let's not respond like Moses, the first part. Let's respond like Isaiah. Here I am. 
Send me. Trust in God, church. Amen? Trust in God. Lord, we are weak. But in our weakness, you are made strong. Lord, may be our first love. And I pray this morning that if someone's never experienced your holiness and your presence and your just awesomeness, I pray you'd reveal yourself to them now. And they'd be changed. They would call upon your son, be born again. You would cleanse them and use them. Lord, be our first love. May we trust in you as we obey. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. Homework. Revelation 2, 1 through 7. And I want you to really think about trusting in God this week. Amen? Trust Him. And that means step out. All right. God bless you.